Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, from paper cup fees to fighting climate change, will Vancouver City Hall finally get back to the basics? Plus, former Premier Christy Clark joins us as we discuss the pending federal tax on alcohol as BC celebrates the 10-year anniversary of Happy Hour. And Tesla opens its charges to other electric vehicles in the U.S. Will it follow in B.C.? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall podcast, where it's always happy hour. Beer tax, uh, wine tax, of course, has gotten under the skin of Canadians as well. What also has gotten under the skin of Vancouverites, of course, was that single-use cup fee. Well, Vancouver City Council repealed that controversial uh, $0.25 cent fee last night. It had been in place for over 13 months. The fee will officially abol- be abolished on June 1st of this year. Uh, last night, after uh, the repeal occurred, uh, Councillor Rebecca Bly uh, spoke uh, to media this morning. She also spoke to our Simi Sarah. Take a listen frontline business workers, particularly coming out of COVID last year, but ongoing through the entire year, were dealing with a lot of uh, negative interactions with their customers, trying to explain what this fee was all about. In the outset, it was negatively impacting low-income folks who were getting, let's say, like a free coffee voucher for McDonald's or Tim Hortons or a place like that, and then would go to collect it and would have to pay the 25-cent fee. People have found that they're getting charged the fee, even though they get the reusable cups, so they're having to make sure that that fee's not on there. And even in instances having to try and get refunds. At the time, people were not even allowed to bring their reusable cups or find themselves in situations where they can't bring a reusable cup like arenas or the peony or bubble tea or blizzards. I mean, the list goes on. Now, the repeal of that cup fee was part of the broader conversation uh, of, for the city in regards to dealing with climate change. It was uh, often discussed during the last uh, administration, and part of it also included the that parking tax that I think irked a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Vancouverites. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about not just the cup fee, but more importantly, do we have a role to play in climate change, and how does that fit into the context of running a city? Uh, joining me now is Mike Klassen, uh, ABC Vancouver City. Councillor Mike, thanks for joining us. Jazz, I am so excited to be back here in studio. I think I'm your second guest in, uh, what, three years or something yes, like that? Yes, it Amazing. is. You know, it feels great to actually have a conversation with a human being with the, rather than just hearing about it through your earphones, but actually seeing a face and having a conversation. So thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. And we're hopefully, this is once again another stage of a post-COVID environment, but we have lots to talk about here. First of all, uh, last night, uh, Rebecca Bly obviously spoke to Simi Sarah this morning, uh, said it was the right thing to do. Um, are we going to, this particular council, are you... When it comes to this this particular um, cup fee, are you the party that is now going to focus a bit more on practical, pragmatic issues and perhaps less on big picture, climate change, let's leave it to uh, senior levels of government to deal with and focus more on, as I like to say, potholes and community centres and garbage pickup? Local government has an important role to play, and Vancouver has been a leader on climate initiatives, and that's not necessarily going to change. But the fact is, is that just to use the example of the cup fee, we need to have tangible uh, initiatives that are actually going to work in terms of driving driving down uh, greenhouse gases, uh, uh, waste streams. And um, so I think our approach to this is we've got to really look at the policies and decide how we're going to meet some of the targets that we've set. So you're very familiar with uh, the greenhouse gas goals that uh, are set out in the, uh, the Paris Accord and elsewhere. Vancouver has its own goals of becoming, uh, reducing the overall emissions to I think 2007 levels by 2030. We have set targets for ourselves 
uh, over the last decade, and we've missed all those targets. So the, the news and the briefing we got around the Climate Emergency Action Plan yesterday from staff was not good. It said that we're not going to be able to hit those targets unless we make some changes. Um, so I think we need to have put everything on the table, have every tool in the toolkit. Now, to your question about whether cities uh, can do all the other things too, we're going into a budget cycle right now, mm-hmm. and it's, I think it's going to be really important as we are right now and as, as, as people who follow what we've been doing at City Hall. Budgets usually get tabled in December, but that's when we were being sworn into government. We said we need to take a look at the numbers, take this budget and make it our own as much as we can, given the fact that many of the decisions uh, that are uh, going to affect how we spend money in the city were made by previous governments. But we are doing a deep dive into every department and trying to figure out how we can get some of those core, really vital basic services uh, back on track. And I'll give you an example. Uh, One of the things that was... Not entirely surprising to me, but the number is quite shocking. Um, I think a lot of people would agree. The city streets have looked kind of gritty. The gardens have not been properly mended. You hear about it all the time on the show. It's made me crazy as a a citizen of the city, and, and I'm very proud of Vancouver, and I want it to look good. I want it to look as good as our neighbors. We cut that budget by 25% 10 years ago. The garbage, the garbage pickup, and just or just staff, just the cleaning. So the, basically, the horticulture, um, sort of the street cleaning, the things that that are highly noticeable in the summertime. So when you go down um, a lot of major thoroughfares, if there's a boulevard, sometimes you see weeds that are waist high, and that's been the case for a long time. And so we can't have that anymore. I mean, if and part of our mandate is to make sure that the city can feel proud of ourselves again. So we have to go into that budget cycle and say, how do we get those numbers back up to where we can actually do those services properly? You know, some will say this is petty, but when you look at Vancouver's brand or Canada's brand, people, I, all, I get this from relatives who come from other parts of the world. You're a clean city. You're a clean country, which basically tells me, hey, the basics, which is infrastructure, we do well. And that, that to me is what a G7 country, G7 city should look like. But when you tell me, why would you cut, the, cut it by 25%? I'm trying to understand, what was the justification? Do you know? It, it, well, I, I know when it was done. I can guess why they decided. But I think that what was told to me by our, our uh, engineering staff is the city looks pretty good. Perhaps we can cut back on what we're doing there and spend that money elsewhere. And I think that's what we're facing now, and I think that's the the, the hard reality that we're facing as we get through the numbers. We've been in a structural deficit in many areas in the city for quite some time, and this is just one example. I think our parks uh, budget has also uh, suffered. It didn't help that we lost millions in parking revenue when we put in the bike lane, which is one reason why we decided that we needed to rethink how we're going to do that bike lane, to get some of that parking revenue back that allows us to make sure that we properly fund and, and take care of our parks. We are speaking to Mike Klassen. He's the ABC Vancouver City Council. We were talking about, of course, the repeal of the single cup uh, fee uh, that occurred last night. Uh, we're also talking broadly about what role uh, that a city has, what a city have when it comes to dealing with climate change. Some have been quite disappointed in yesterday's decision uh, and I've also talked about the city's climate justice charter and you have to be doing more. Uh, but also within that context, as, as Mike said, you know, you still have to be um, dealing with the garbage and dealing with potholes and your community centres as well. So we're trying to talk, we're talking about 
what is that 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 middle that cities must um, so that course they must uh, move on and move towards in regards to dealing with all these issues? But at the same time, there is no doubt in my mind. After ten years, there is a desire from from citizens, certainly in Vancouver, about uh, getting back to the basics. So give me a call on the open line. I do want to hear from you six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to the open line. Let's go to Maureen in Vancouver. Hi, Maureen. Hey there. Mike and and Lisa are going to drive yourself crazy. We're we're not measuring correctly. Since 2010, mm-hmm. yes, we have not dropped the overall GHGs, but we've added 340,000 people. So we've actually declined on a per person perspective by 14%. You can't measure a number when we keep bringing people in. You can't use the overall number as a measure. We're doing well. We're doing well as a city. I mean, there's still going to be more people moving here, but you're right. The numbers are, the challenge is still going to be there. Like Vancouver is not like it's it's not attracting citizens and with greater density, yeah. you're going to have even more. Uh, there's been, a, a, and thank you, caller. I, 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 of course, there's been more people who have come into the city. I, I think um, uh, sort of the net per person uh, greenhouse gases might be relatively the same, but we, I, I do think that some of the policies that we're looking at now uh, in terms of uh, our building envelopes, uh, building code that we're looking at, um, uh, the way we use transportation, the move to EVs, I think we're only sort of scraping the surface and what we can do in terms of uh, carbon offsets. And um, those are things that we can ask uh, as, as a measure, for example, um, uh, you know, how many EV star- charging stations can we put in some of our new buildings and so on. So there are tools in our toolkit to try and get us there. But I think um, it, you know, the city has a role to play in this, as, as I mentioned earlier on, but it also has a really important role to play in terms of supporting its population. And we saw, of course, during the heat dome and and during some of the uh, weather extremes that we saw in 2021, we know that there are conditions out there that uh, that affect a lot of us. We had hundreds of people die during the heat dome. Those are the kinds of measures that we really need to uh, be very proactive on and, uh, and and make our city much more resilient going forward. And I, I would agree with you on that. I, I think it was 600 plus British Columbians died during that heat dome. Yep. I think 100 in the city of Vancouver. Uh, I know in, in the city of New Westminster, their now mayor who's been on our show, Patrick Johnson, has talked about cooling centers and making sure the community centers are there for uh, a vulnerable population. I don't think anybody in the city, taxpayers especially, would, would disagree with that. But it's a question of of the other bigger pictures, things that some of people's taxpayers will say, wait a minute here, that, leave that to the Victoria or leave that to Ottawa. And I think that's that's the challenge. And, and in regards to the other question, the other point the caller made there in regards to people are moving here, uh, I saw you at the conference yesterday at the Buildex conference, which is the, the, the biggest construction conference west of Toronto. And we heard from one of our speakers of all the immigrants that come to Canada, about 19% end up in BC. And of that 19, 16% of that 19 end up in Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And the city of Vancouver itself is, 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 is just attracts many, many people and will continue to do so, right? So, oh, absolutely. We yeah. Disproportionately, I think, across Canada. And, um, and of course, that's great. I mean, they, they contribute to the economy um, and they are filling roles that are absolutely necessa- necessary for us. Um, but it puts pressure on housing and other uh, infrastructure. Absolutely. Let's go to uh, Trevor in Vancouver. Hi, Trevor. Hey, Jazz, I just want to speak to the point that your uh, councillor was making about the budgets. Now, if you look back historically in Vancouver, they, they really got off track when Vision Vancouver and uh, Jeff Mick and Gregor Robertson had their pet projects. Um, that really took away from the, the, the core services, whether it was um, 
you know, giving Chip Wilson a, a quiet road on Point Grey Road or whatever, they, they were unnecessary. And they, they really ate into the coppers. I mean, uh, Vision Vancouver, if you look at them, I mean, do you remember what their mandate was, what they ran on on the original term? It was to end homelessness. I would call that a fail if you, if you look at the city of Vancouver in their, in their thing. And once again, going back to the original point here, is that's when we got off track in the city of Vancouver. So it really pains me when I hear a guy like Peter Ladner grovel over bike lanes when we put in a, a, so many of them in the, in the Stanley Park one of the, the thing when we just don't have the funds to to keep doing these things when, when, when everything else is suffering. Trevor, thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Good point. Uh, just uh, we have about 20 seconds here. Uh, the budget process starts now. When does it end? When do you actually sort of talk about some of these things in a public way? So we are going to be tabling it. I, uh, the, the first draft budget, I think, of the uh, next go around of council, which is in a couple of weeks from now. And then we, uh, I'm sorry, I, I think next week. And then uh, we will have to finalize the budget uh, a couple of weeks after that. So it's coming up fast and furious and there's a lot of important decisions. And hopefully there's more money for garbage pickup. So fingers crossed. For sure. I want to thank our guest, Mike Klassen, the Vancouver City Councilor. On this program, we talked about the challenges uh, impacting many fairs uh, and festivals here in British Columbia. Uh, we've talked about the Vancouver Folk Music Festival and Squamish's Constellation Festival. All of these festivals are having difficulty starting up in a post-COVID world. Many festivals have talked about uh, decreased attendance because people are still hesitant to um, go to the festivals because of the large crowds. Um, a lot of these festivals also have uh, more expensive operating costs and upfront deposits are required and dollars which these festivals um, and these organizations just don't have. Well, now the BC government has created a one-time fund to support festivals and events over the next two years because they struggle to recover from the impacts of COVID-19. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this new fund is Lana Popham, BC's Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sports. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon. It's good to be on with you, Jazz. Yeah, good to chat here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, this is a one-time fund? It is. It's a one-time fund. But it's the second uh, fund that was $30 million through COVID for a similar uh, similar problem. But uh, this is addressing kind of a post-COVID problem. Uh, and what's the uh, time limit in regards to when you can apply and what's the cutoff date? Okay, so you can apply right now as we speak. The the link went live uh, while I was making that announcement, Mm -hmm. and applications are going to be accepted until March 3rd. Uh, It's not much time, but uh, we do want to get this money out so that fairs and festivals can get on with their planning and know that they have maybe one less worry this year. And is there a maximum as to how much uh, uh, they can ask for from this this, uh, fund? Yeah, it's $250,000 max, um, and we do see some of our, our larger events taking advantage of, of that amount. For example, the PNE is one that, that had. There are other types of uh, applications and grants available that they can uh, apply for as well, but from this particular fund, it's a, a maximum of $250,000. Do you foresee uh, a similar announcement from you next year as well, or six months from now? Is this going to be the end of it, or, or do you think even in this post-COVID environment, you may still need to be doing more of this in, in the months and years ahead? We're really hoping that this allows for fairs, festivals and events to um, take a bit of a breather in their worry, but also to kind of 
look at their business plans for the, for the next year and um, address some of the problems that we see that are facing everyone. Uh, and it's not just in BC, it's all over North America around just the costs of, of doing business. And so things like renting, fencing, renting washrooms, uh, just just basic things like this that you might need for for an, to put on an event around the province. It costs more, uh, and we are seeing a bit of a challenge getting people out to these events. Hopefully, over the next year, the attendance problem um, will be addressed because people will uh, be more confident that they can be out and about. But business plans and in the uh, for the future have to address kind of the challenges we see now. So this is a one-time fund. Uh, I don't, we're not planning on doing this again, but of course we'll continue to listen to the folks that are doing these types of things. And just to confirm the, the 30 million uh, comes out of the one-time $5.7 billion surplus that the, the province uh, uh, is dealing with right now, which is a, which is a great news story. It's a one, but it's one time that's the money's coming out of the 5.7 billion. Yeah, it's coming out of the end-of-year contingency funding. Um, so, yeah, so it is one time. Um, but uh, there was a lot of relief today because we we know um, that there's a, a, a huge challenge right around the province with, with fairs, festivals, and events that are trying to see what they can do for this current year. This fund uh, will um, take into account anything that's planned this year or next year. And uh, we just... You know, you mentioned the Sea um, Consolation Festival. Mm-hmm. They've already contacted us saying how relieved they are. So it's, uh, the Folk Fest, of course, stood up, and, and I was able to give some statements today as we made this announcement. This might not be what allows Folk Fest to get past the finish line, but they said it's sure going to be able to help them, and they're even entertaining putting a festival on this year because of it. So, so that's great. So, so just to just to confirm here, so the Squamish's Consolation Festival, so they've already reached out today uh, after this announcement. Yeah, and they said that they're relieved to hear about it. So uh, that made us feel great. And Folk Fest did with us during the announcement and said it, it allows them to feel hopeful mm-hmm. and it opens up possibilities, which is great. So the last time this, so last year we had uh, a similar fund that was uh, announced and. Just to tell you kind of the impact it has on the province, the the fund supported 682 fairs, festivals and events, 682, and that was province-wide. In fact, it covered 134 communities throughout the province. So um, there's relief from one end of BC to the next. Yeah, I think people sometimes forget, we always think PNE or the Folk Music Festival, in this case, the Squamish yeah. uh, Constellation Festival, but there's or there are myriad of festivals throughout this province, I think even growing Absolutely. up in the Caribou, uh, Williams Lake Stampede, but there's the Seafood oh, yeah. Festival, I'm thinking in, in, uh, in, I think it's Comox, and there's many others uh, all over this province, and, and they all do great work, and they, they bind the community together, and they're so vital. So glad to hear about this announcement, so hopefully it'll help uh, save a lot of these big festivals and small ones as well and uh they we can... sure hope so yeah so do yeah, we. we sure hope so and you know um if i can just make a, a request and ask of the listening public we really need to, you to get out there and attend these events we need to grow with the audiences because that's what these these fairs festival events are depending on mm-hmm. so once again uh it is live now so people so these these events the these festival organizers can apply now and the cutoff is actually is it uh, when is what is the cutoff again it's March 3rd so it's it's not open for long but 
you know, the ones that applied last year, we still have their paperwork. So they just need to be able to contact us and let us know they want to do that again. And then fairs that at festivals and events that didn't apply last time, they, they're going to have to make a, a new application, of course. But our ministry is there with helping hands. In fact, my team was ready as soon as it went live today to start working on it. So that's what we're focused on right now is making sure we get these applications processed and get that money out the door. Minister, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Talk again soon. Let's revisit uh, last night's uh, decision by uh, Vancouver City Council to repeal the 25-cent cup fee. Uh, Rebecca Bly was on Mornings of Simi uh, today explaining why they made that decision. Take a listen frontline business workers, particularly coming out of COVID last year, but ongoing through the entire year, were dealing with a lot of uh, negative interactions with their customers, trying to explain what this fee was all about. In the outset, it was negatively impacting low-income folks who were getting, let's say, like a free coffee voucher for McDonald's or Tim Hortons or a place like that, and then would go to collect it and would have to pay the 25-cent fee. People have found that they're getting charged the fee, even though they get the reusable cups, so they're having to make sure that that fee's not on there. And even in instances having to try and get refunds. At the time, people were not even allowed to bring their reusable cups or find themselves in situations where they can't bring a reusable cup like arenas or the peony or bubble tea or blizzards. I mean, the list goes on. That was uh, Councillor Rebecca Bly uh, speaking to uh, Simi Sarah this morning. A uh, lot of calls on this issue uh, last couple of weeks. Uh, joining me now to talk about the impact that this fee had on the BC Restaurant and Food Service Association is Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO of that organization. Ian, thank you for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Jazz. How you doing? I'm doing very well, sir. I understand uh, you presented yesterday as well at City at City Hall. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, on the conversation, but more importantly, the decision to repeal the 25 cent fee. Yeah, the, 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 this was a deposit to nowhere. I mean, it was um, <laughs> I, I, honest, you know. And 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 the segment you just played with with Councillor Bly yeah. is so true. Like, you know, there's all these permutations and combinations as. We're talking about a twenty-five cent deposit fee here, and we got into the homeless and blizzards, and you know. So, isn't it interesting that a, a good intention by trying to change behavior by adding twenty-five cents didn't do anything? So, I mean, the, the conversation by and large uh, yesterday was totally in favor of this. Um, what, and we support this part of it. You know, what what the, what we also need to do was find what's the next chapter of this, and I don't think anybody knows that. But from our point of view. Um, I actually had a board meeting most of the day today and we were talking about this. And mm-hmm. we were talking about things like um, in malls, when you, you know, when you go in and you take your tray and you put your garbage here and your plastic there and your cardboard there, it, it, someone should do the sociology study in that because most people stand there and go, I'm not really sure. Or is this compostable or is this recyclable? Uh, is this soiled? So it can't it has to go in the garbage because it's got food on it. So there's a lot of basic education that I think that we we heard last night. There's an opportunity for some basic education here to start at, at ground zero and educate people as to you know where the stuff, where these cups go, where they can go, where you can put them. And I think we got to start there. Versus one of our board members owns a series of coffee shops, and she said people didn't even know they were even paying it. They were just 
heating their credit card or their debit card and walking out. They didn't, most people didn't know there was a 25 cent fee. In the case that people did know, did, did, did staff or have you heard of staff uh, dealing with abusive customers at all? Yeah. What is this? You know, what, and then it was the old, like, what are you doing the money, right? You guys are taking this money and becoming rich on it. Well, that's not true. Um, you know, it did help defray some of the costs. And there were some businesses that said, you know what? We kind of enjoyed that. But, this, but a lot of businesses said this. We don't want to have to report our sales and our cup usage to the city, city hall, who then can take all this data and roll it up and go, hmm, there's millions of dollars here going through deposit systems, so maybe we should formalize this and we should control it. They don't want anything to do with that. They want everything to do with a proactive way on how to deal with environmental issues. That's our responsibility, and, and that's a, you know number one. But at the same time, they don't want government in managing, you know, how many cups you have and reporting it. If you don't tell me how many cups you have, you don't, you wouldn't get your business license. This is becoming a little bit too prescriptive. And when you make, you know, in our experience, when you make environmental things that complicated or negative, you don't get the response you want. You want people to really get into this. So I, I said to the mayor, we need to engage the public. We need to engage business and we need to work together to find a system in Vancouver that, that everybody feels really good about and not sort of outing people or penalizing people for 25 cents. Shouldn't just Vancouver stay out of it? And what I mean by that is well, leave, it, leave it to the region. First of all, I mean, it's ridiculous that you're paying 25 cents on one side of the road and the other side of Boundary Road, you're not paying it. Yeah, so either bring it in through Metro Vancouver or leave it to Victoria or Ottawa to deal with this stuff. And, you know, these uh, municipalities just stay in their lane and deal with other things that they perhaps can have greater control over. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The best policy is one policy, in this case, for all of British Columbia. And we know, I mean, if you're a Starbucks and you've got a policy in Vancouver and one, no, no policy in Burnaby and maybe half a policy in Surrey, that's no way to run a business, is that we want to have maximum pressure and exposure to the issue. And by doing it, as you say, uh, through the guidance of the provincial and, you know, the federal government, probably ultimately, that's the better solution. This This patchwork of different municipalities trying to be heroes in their own right is doesn't work. It, it never works and it gets very costly. Let's talk about something positive for, for a yeah. moment. I was looking, I was going through the headlines. Ten years ago this year, uh, we implemented Happy Hour uh, in BC. Uh, the government talked about it uh, and, uh, you know, we, we don't talk a lot about it. Just give me a <laughs> sense of just what it's meant for the restaurant and bar industry in this province. Well, June 20th, 2014, and Victoria announced happy hour in British Columbia. Prior to that, there was no happy hour. We were happy, but there was no happy hour. And the reason was, was this whole attitude about alcohol, you know, you need cheap alcohol and people are going to abuse it and stuff. And so there were some a minimum prices established, which was, you know, which we were still very good pricing, that you couldn't sell below a certain price for wine, beer, or spirits. Um, and... It has served us well. I mean, I want to take away the happy from happy hour. It's great for consumers. And it's great, but it's really designed in the shoulder periods so that yeah. you go out in the afternoon when the restaurant's not busy and you have a little happy hour and then you might decide to stay or you might buy some more food or they have a chance to sell you up. What's happening now, though, unfortunately, in the last little bit, we're starting to see too much happy hour. In other words, happy hour is, is gone beyond happy hour. It's, it's being extended through uh, longer parts of the day so people can attract business because our, our guest counts are starting to dwindle, to dwindle a bit here. People are starting to, um, 
you know, our, our, our revenues are all right, but the number of visits we're getting to restaurants are starting to crater a little bit. And I think this is the indication of the economy. So, you know, certainly then when you go to talk about happy hours, they become more appealing from a consumer point of view. So they'll stay. But I think the, the message for industry is make sure that you guys don't race to the bottom of this one. Make sure that we give, you know, some great value to our guests and experiences to our guests and do things to get people out. But when you start to run happy hours just for the sake of just trying to fill your place because customer counts are going out a bit, that's a bit of a concern. And happy hour generally is three till six, or it's, as you're saying, it's going even earlier or, or it's on for the, for the afternoon, then it's not, and then maybe late yeah. evening it begins again, something like that? We're seeing brunch happy hour in the Okanagan starting. Really? And then we're seeing uh, afternoon sort of, or, you know, mid-afternoon happy hour. And now we're seeing like sort of after dinner happy hours. So we're, we're, these are day parts that we're not used to. Typically, it would be like you know you would go down to the states and you go to oh I just go to a, go to happy hour. It'd be like for two hours everybody's doing happy hour for two hours. But now it's 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 popping up during what we call different day parts. And um, industry just has to be a little bit cautious of that because they're as you well know they're not flush with cash right now. But they but they need to generate revenue. And that's you know. We're not saying change it. We're not saying don't do it. We think it's great. You know, anything we can do to provide value to our guests. But we're also against a lot of rising costs as well, too. So you don't make a lot of money on, on um, uh, in, interestingly, on happy hour. But it's still happy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the customers definitely like it. Ian, thank you so much. Okay, Jazz. Take care. Let's talk uh, electric vehicles. Now, uh, Joe Biden, U.S. President Joe Biden, like um, many elected officials, has been pushing hard in regards to uh, convincing voters to to get uh, to purchase uh, electric vehicles and to buy um, uh, EVs. But of course, you need EV chargers. Well, Mr. Biden says um, his administration wants to build 500,000 EV chargers across the United States. And he wants at least 50% of new cars sold to be electric by 2030 in the U.S. Well, Congress has approved. I know there's a lot of fighting and fighting going on in the U.S. There always is with Republicans and Democrats, but they do agree on certain things as well. Congress has approved $5 billion for highway chargers, plus another $2.5 billion in grants for charging infrastructure. Uh, what's also interesting in regards to this announcement is that at least 7,500 Tesla chargers will be made available for all electric vehicles by the end of 2024. So that means Tesla's chargers, which uh, I guess are trademark, copyright, whatever you want to call it, trademark, I guess, and uh, they can only be used for T uh, Teslas, now will be open up to uh, other uh, car makers as well. It's a push by the Biden administration, which, by the way, probably doesn't agree with Elon Musk on a lot of things, but they've agreed to move forward on this. And could we see something like this in British Columbia? And I want to talk a little bit about our EV network and, more importantly, our charging network. Joining me now is Jeremy Cato. He's an automotive journalist behind CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Good to see you. I'll talk to you. Yeah, and so walk, <laughs> we'll see each other soon. Hopefully, we get you in studio here. Uh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about this announcement. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, I, I, I think it, it's the old story um, uh, follow the money. The, the Biden administration, uh, with with Nancy Pelosi when she was still speaker, passed the, <laughs> the strangely titled Inflation Reduction Act, which is actually a mostly a big green energy program. And it includes 
something like seven and a half billion dollars to uh, enhance the charging station. All kinds of uh, handouts and incentives for manufacturers, including Tesla, to build out their charging stations to maximize the the effectiveness of uh, of uh, the EV push that the Biden administration and our governments here in Canada, both provincial and federal, uh, are, are pushing for, which is to perhaps by 2030 to 2035, 60% of the cars on the road would be EVs. So we're talking 18 to 20 million EVs on the road, you know, within the next decade and a half. So you got to charge those things someplace. And that's what's at work here. Uh, are you, do you buy the numbers at all in regards to having that many EVs on the road, especially when you need chargers? Not for a second. I mean, I mean, these, these are, these are targets, um, but targets, as you know, are, uh, not always hit, mm-hmm. but I do think the the commitment to uh, shifting the, the uh, away from carbon based um, transportation networks to uh, electric uh, and renewable electric uh, electric vehicles charged by renewable electricity. I do think that's very real, but there's huge barriers to to getting charging stations up. I, I've read to put that in some perspective. I've read that various ex- experts are suggesting we need somewhere between 500,000 and 4 million charging uh, docks in Canada to meet the targets that are set out by uh, 2040. So I don't think ever, anybody really knows how many charging stations we need. And, and that, that creates all kinds of challenges for people who are uh, building them and thinking about buying an electric car. I think we have about 16,000 across the country, but that's just a number. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, it, if you could be stuck somewhere and there's no charger or you've got to wait or whatever it may be, even if you have a lot, maybe heavy use there, and you may have to wait to get to a charger uh, as well. Uh, speak to me a little bit about what you. What would you like to see change here in this country? The government's now encouraging people to get EV vehicles. They're, they're, I know on the provincial side and the federal side, there is an encouragement, tax incentives to build more chargers. But you also in the past have spoken to me about the challenges you've seen in your own condominium complex. Well, that's right. Uh, it, it's very difficult to, to shift behavior this quickly and this dramatically. I mean, you know, right, right now, Canadians for the last decade if you take the pandemic out of the out of the equation, the pandemic years, um, we're buying somewhere between 1.8 and 2 million new gasoline-powered vehicles in Canada. Um, so you're you're asking the marketplace to shift from that, which has been going on for decades, people buying gasoline-powered and diesel-powered vehicles, to making the wholesale shift to electrification. So th- that's a pretty dramatic shift. What seems to be missing. In, in the equation, isn't the will or the capabilities of automakers of all sorts, from Tesla to Ford Motor to Nissan, to create electric vehicles, but rolling out the infrastructure to support them? And, and there, there was a lot of ways that I've never seen properly explored, and every time I ask the question, uh, I don't get a very good answer. So, for example, mm-hmm. um, there's car dealerships all over this country, thousands of them. It seems to me that if you're asking every car manufacturer to provide charging stations, why not build out the network right at the dealerships that sell these things? Um, you know, I mean, why not? I mean, every every small town across Canada has car dealers, uh, and they're all dotted all along highway destinies. So I, I guess the big overriding answer that I would say is private industry has not been engaged 
uh, effectively to support the charging network. This has been something that has been a haphazard, uh, sloppily applied approach to creating a charging infrastructure network. And when there's already places in place where you could maximize this this sort of thing, I, I, when I talk to car dealers, for example, Jeff, they've never been approached by any government official to, to create a um, uh, to participate in the creation of a charging network. So those kinds of um, uh, uh, approaches, using public corporations and private corporations, bringing in the private sector to uh, bolster this. It seems to be a missing part of the equation. It is interesting, isn't it, that we spend so much of our time fighting and talking about paper cup fees in the city of Vancouver when they could be <laughs> spending their time on, um, you know, making sure it's easier to put chargers in new condominium developments, lobbying oh. the provincial government uh, in regards to building codes, which would allow for more chargers. I mean, that's the stuff we should be focusing on. And that's where I think municipal government has a role to play when it comes to climate change, not paper cups. Well, some are trying. Uh, you know, I, I attended last week uh, a seminar put on uh, by the city of North Vancouver, where I live, um, that laid out the approaches condominiums, new and, uh, and existing ones, uh, can take to access various government subsidies and supports that are out there. But when you start digging into the details of it, well, I, I'm the president of my strata council, and when I talk to my fellow council members, we, we look at each other and say, well, there's three people in a building of 153 units that have electric vehicles. How do we sell the idea of... of up of the uh, the strata corporation spending up front somewhere between one hundred and twenty five and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to uh, to provide a network of charging outlets in our building when only three people are going to use them and then uh, you know there there's ways to get around that uh, or to, to bolster that argument for example I've seen figures that a charging dock in in a uh, in a unit adds about ten thousand dollars of value to a vehicle. But that, that, for example, was not part of the presentation by the city of North Vancouver. So it's, it's 150000 to put on a charging station for like a condominium or townhouse complex? And, you know, to qualify for government incentives. So there, there's oh, okay. incentives out there that are, uh, that are delivered through BC Hydro and various municipalities. You need to wire, if you've got an existing building, for example, an older building, let's say it's 15 or 20 years old, you need to, you need to wire the entire parkade so that each parking space can be accessible for a charging dock. It doesn't mean you have to install the dock, but you do have to wire it. So, for example, in this building that I'm talking about now, it's, it's a 40-year-old building with a concrete indoor and outdoor uh, parking spots. The only way we could retrofit that would, have put, would, would be to put um, ex, ex, uh, external conduit along the walls um, and that presents other security issues then for us, right? So if we're going to put, we're going to wire this so we could put two twenty volt docks in every parking space, um, then we have to think about putting security cameras up because when you wire a building like that and you have external con, uh, conduit, then it, it's a it, it's a vandalization or a criminal issue that could come up. So yes, we could we could spend one hundred and twenty five or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and probably get a big chunk of that bat back through various incentives. But then then who's going to pay for the security cameras? Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, vandalism happens. This is the world we live in, uh, you know. And so 
Those kinds of issues were not addressed in the presentation I went to. And, and so when I go around and ask people in our building, in this building, you know, what do you think? They say, well, I don't even own a car. Why would I even, you know, support this initiative? Because I don't, I take transit. And and just a final question to you. So the, in, in new buildings, is there any uh, requirement from the city or the province to, to, to pre-wire it for chargers? Yes. There is. Yes. New construction needs to be uh, prepared. Um, and and I believe in, in this, it, this is a municipality thing, but in, for example, in the city of North Vancouver, I believe 10% of the parking spaces need to have charging docks, a level two. So that that's, that's, the, that's like the plug to use for your um, your dryer uh, your, your, your your dryer or your washing machine that sort of thing so it, it'll take you about eight hours to charge up an electric vehicle with one of those a slow charge well fingers crossed we yeah. can deal with this issue but once again a reminder of where our priorities should be jeremy thanks for your time my friend my, my pleasure we'll talk again let me uh, crunch the numbers for you. If you had 125 bucks in your pocket, and I know it's very hard this day and age to have 125 bucks in your pocket, for 125 bucks you could pick up a couple bottles of wine, a 24 pack of beer, and a 26 ounce bottle of whiskey. Of that 125 dollars you spent uh, for a good couple of days of beverages, you're paying 76 dollars in tax. $76. How bad has it gotten in this country? Well, between 2017 and 2019, federal beer taxes went up $34 million for large brewers here in this country, uh, while they've gone down $31 million south of the border. Of course, Canadians, of course, are quite depressed when they go across the border and they see the price of alcohol, especially when you visit a Costco. Here's, um, uh, 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 I guess, a clip that we have from a Canadian couple visiting a Costco in Arizona. Listen to this. We're at Arizona Costco. Look at these liquor prices. 66 of vodka, 12 99 Come on, come over here. We are getting rinsed in Canada. Look at this. Look at this here. 66 of spice from 13 99 how are these people not looking up 24-7? <laughs> We're getting rinsed in Canada. Well, it's, he's right. He's absolutely right. And part of the problem is the federal excise tax. It was brought in during the 2017 uh, budget by the federal liberals. And what it does, it automax, automatically uh, uh, has a tax hike escalator built in. That's his government talk. Basically means that every year the taxes on alcohol go up. They call it excise tax. They don't call it alcohol tax, excise tax, but it goes up automatically April 1st based on the inflation rate. Now, when inflation's at 1% or 2%, not a problem, right? But when it's at 6, uh, six 7, 8%, well, guess what? On April 1st, alcohol costs will go up by 6.3%. That's a 40-year high. Of, inflation's at a 40-year high, so your alcohol prices go up by 6.3%. Now, remember, this wasn't introduced in the legislature. It was the law passed in 2017. There's no debate, no scrutiny. It just automatically goes up, and nobody tries to talk about it, especially if you're an elected official. Now, when the tax was first introduced in 2017, not a big deal, of course. Inflation rates were low. But since 2017, every year, it's gone up a little bit, a little bit, little bit by little bit. Well, guess what? Since 2017, alcohol prices have gone up 18% 
in this province. That's the bad news, and it may go up even higher, obviously with the 6.3% increase that they are planning April 1st. Now, on top of that, we have some good news too for you, uh, that this is the 10-year anniversary here in British Columbia where we introduced happy hour. Yes, can you believe that? <laughs> we didn't have happy hour uh, 10 years ago prior to, prior to that. So we are celebrating happy hour. And that was brought in, of course, during the Christy Clark uh, administration. She joins us now to talk about the 10-year anniversary for happy hour, but also the pending 6% federal alcohol tax. Christy, thank you for joining us today. Always nice to be back with you, Jazz. Uh, you know, I was uh, quite surprised until somebody uh, somebody uh, made me aware of this just yesterday, but this is the 10-year anniversary, this 10 years ago this year, that uh, we implemented uh, the happy hour. And just can you walk me through some of the thinking behind that? Because when I first read this uh, yesterday, I was kind of going, it can't be just 10 years. Give me a break. But it, it is. It's been 10 years. Like, what, what was going on in cabinet or caucus? Can you talk to me broadly about what was the conversation when you, when, when you all came in to implement that? Well, so there was, um, we, were, we were thinking about um, how, you know, business agenda, right? How do we create jobs? How do we support small businesses? So many people in the, in the hospitality industry are small businesses. And so that was kind of core to our agenda. And then this conversation started about, I don't know if you remember this, it was bars that were kind of, that had were sort of sports bars, you know, they'd have lots and lots of TVs on the walls. And there was a dispute about like the size of a TV and where it was located and were there too many TVs. And the liquor people were coming in and they were measuring the TVs. And I sort of, I, like I heard about that and thought, wow, that's overkill. And, you know, and so I said, like, let's go look at these liquor regulations. And when we looked at them, we found out you're not allowed. We're only province in the country that weren't allowed. To, we weren't allowed to have happy hour. We were, we, you couldn't, if you were a business, you owned a couple of restaurants, you couldn't move liquor between restaurants. You couldn't buy any wine in a, in a grocery store. You go through this long, long list of stuff. And then, of course, there were all these. Remember, you weren't, if you sat down in a restaurant or at, a, at a bar, and they would come up to you and they would say, are you intending to order food? And you always had to say yes. Or they couldn't serve you liquor. Oh, so, we, you know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. And we, we wanted to be small business friendly, and we said, okay, we're taking this on. <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, I'm just listening to you tell this story. I, I still cannot believe this has only been 10 years, uh, the, the way you describe it at, at this point. Was there still opposition at that point when you, when you decided, look, we're moving ahead with some of these recommendations? Well, there was, because, I mean, there's a legitimate concern that people have, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving and some of the other groups that are really active in trying to, keep us safe. Um, we're concerned that, you know, more access to alcohol is never a good thing. Um, you know, allowing um, pubs and bars to serve, you know, liquor without food, you know. I think there's, there, you know, so some of that was quite, came from a very legitimate place. Um, and so we brought in a whole host of, you know, safety regulations with it as well to try and support that. But, I mean, really, Jazz, like, remember, we are the province where, in W.A.C. Bennett's time, there were separate entrances for men and women, and you can still see that at a couple of the old hotels around where there's the ladies and escorts entrance, and then there's the gentlemen's entrance, because he was a teetotaler, and British Columbia, by the t- you know, time I came along in 2011, was 
still kind of hanging on to all of these old regulations from basically almost the Prohibition era. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, is, it is truly amazing. Now, when you look at uh, alcohol today, one uh, doesn't have to be an expert. You could just make a trip down to the Bellingham Costco and look at the price of, of alcohol there and what they're offering and what you have to pay here. And, of course, um, as uh, our listeners know, there's a 6% tax hike uh, going in um, as of April 1st. Um, why does government tax uh, alcohol the way it does. I know this is a federal tax, not a provincial tax, um, but but it seems to be still a place where they feel uh, there's lots of money to be made, but there is a limit somewhere, isn't there? I think there has to be. I mean, you know, the, I mean, the, the reason that it's taxed is obvious, I think. You know, we want to we wanna make sure that we are um, managing, I guess, access to alcohol, but also more, much more importantly, recognize that alcohol has tons of terrible effects from drunk driving accidents to, you know, people ending up in hospital because of, of alcohol-related illness, abuse, uh, you know, domestic issues. So there's all kinds of reasons um, that government should be taxing alcohol. And, it's, you know, like say it's a billion dollars a year, that money goes into things like our healthcare system principally, which, and you know, it's, it's important that we, that we make that link. But honestly, it, you know, when you, when we live so close to the border, it's so easy for people to get alcohol somewhere else. But I think maybe more obviously alcohol is something that a lot of us like to actually just enjoy just a bottle of wine, go to your, you know, your, your local store, grab some chicken for dinner and maybe a glass of what, you know, a bottle of Chardonnay. I mean, I don't think government should be trying to tax us out of the alcohol business or out of using alcohol. We're adults. We use it responsibly. It's a product that people have a right to enjoy. And I just think, you know, all of this kind of nanny state government kind of trying to make something more expensive than it should be because they don't want us to do it. Let people make their own decisions about these things. I mean, there's a there's a same level of taxation, but I don't think we're there anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, especially with this excise tax that was brought in in 2017 by the, the federal liberals, and and it goes up with the cost uh, with the with the inflation rate. And as we know, inflation's where it's at today, and so this time it's six point three percent. That is significant. And and since this excise tax has been brought in, eighteen percent. We're paying our, our alcohol is eighteen percent more expensive, and uh, I just find it to be incredibly excessive, in regards to you know as you say, people like a glass of wine or a drink at the at the end of the day or on a weekend, and we shouldn't be hitting them so hard. And like I said, one trip to a Costco in Bellingham or anywhere in the U.S. and you realized uh, how much we are uh, paying on the provincial side. Now that you're uh, you know out of government and and enjoying private life, is there a time you think that we can see? Um, alcohol available in not just grocery stores, which I know you were part of implementing and bringing in, but a much more wider array of retail outlets, or do you think we're still a generation away from that? Oh, I, I you know, I, I think that's not coming anytime <laughs> soon. I do, I, you know, I mean, it is, it's great you go to Costco here. You know, part of it, um, down in the States, but, you know, part of that question, too, is, what are we trying to, like, we have to find that balance, I think, between public convenience and making sure that the small business people who are, you know, selling alcohol 
are able to keep their businesses going. So, I mean, there's always a risk when these huge wealthy companies get into selling liquor in huge amounts. It really does um, have an impact on small restaurants and and small liquor establishments like pubs. So, uh, there's you know there are other things to consider there. But jazz, honestly, this federal. Okay, first of all, what is the federal government doing taxing liquor and taking the money when provinces? should be doing that job because provinces are the ones that pay for 80% of health care. And if alcohol has an impact on people's health, which we know it does, and the feds are taking that money to Ottawa and spending it on, I don't know what, probably growing government, there's no public benefit to that, or there's minimal public benefit. And as you say, in the middle of a serious um, you know, cost of living shock, that people are going through right now, this is just the wrong time to be doing that. Mm. Everything is getting more expensive. And, you know, to take away somebody's six-pack of beer because they can't afford it anymore um, is just not the right thing for government to do at this point in time. No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, I'm just happy that we have happy hour, and uh, and I'm very happy that you were able to join <laughs> us today uh, as well. Uh, and I hope Private Life is treating you well. Well, you know, I might, um, I, it's maybe a little early uh, in the day for me still, but I'm definitely going to open a Corona a little bit later, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. Christy, thanks for your time. <laughs> nice to talk with <laughs> nice, you, Jeff. Nice to Take talk care. to you. Let's focus on BC politics uh, for a moment. Last year, you may remember John Rustad. He is uh, the MLA for the Nechaco Lakes area, which is around um, uh, Vanderhoof, but just north of um, north of Prince George. He was a member of the BC Liberal Party, longtime member of the BC Liberal Party, uh, but he decided to leave the party, or at the very least, he was booted out of the BC Liberal Party uh, by their leader Kevin Falcon after uh, Mr. Rustad uh, made some controversial tweets about climate change. Well, today, uh, Mr. Rustad joined the BC Conservatives. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this move is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, good afternoon. So uh, in my intro here, uh, the, the for your title, it says Global BC legislative reporter and knower of things. So, <laughs> so as the knower of things, um, what uh, do you think led to Mr. Rustad? Not only, of course, he got booted out, uh, out of caucus last year, but what do you think, uh, why do you think he has now decided to join the BC Conservative Party? Yeah, so I think this has been inevitable for a while here. You'll remember back in the latest by-election uh, that we saw in Surrey, uh, John Rostad was out on the campaign trail uh, working for the Conservative Party of BC. And it seemed like Rostad was weighing the decision about whether he would just uh, flirt with the idea of, of joining the party or whether he would do it. And he's now announced he's doing it. I think part of it is to lend some credibility uh, to this party. It is the only conservative MLA now in the House, the first that we've seen uh, since John Van Dongen a decade ago. Uh, the party has not elected an MLA in a long, long time in this province. But it provides uh, a, a platform for the party in the legislature to put forward ideas and uh, produces a real challenge for the B.C. Liberals here. You know, you and I both know that in the last provincial election, there were a number of seats, I think five or six of them, uh, where uh, the margin uh, between the Liberals and the NDP 
was that of the conservative vote. So conservatives moved from the liberals and the NDP picked up those seats in places like Abbotsford Mission and Vernon Monashie, uh in Langley East. And uh, we'll see if that trend continues, but uh, this move could prove po- problematic for Falcons. Also worth noting the reason why Rustad was booted was around sharing tweets, uh, questioning the science around climate change. And the Liberals have had problems, as you are acutely aware, with some of these issues around social conservatism and hard-right conservatism. We saw in the last election around issues where, you know, candidates for the party didn't support rainbow crosswalks, didn't support universal uh, contraceptives for women and, and questions about climate change. You know, pulling that part of the party out, there are voters out there who support these ideas and, and Falcon's going to have to try to bring them back into the tent while also fighting for the heart of Metro Vancouver in the political center uh, in some of these other swing seats with the NDP. Now, if you want to be an official party in BC, you obviously have yeah. to win seats. And to be an official, uh, official recognized as an official party, you have to win at least two seats or two MLAs that represent a political party. So he obviously isn't going to be recognized as an official party. Uh, but if he attracts one more person from, let's say, a BC Liberal caucus, that technically would make the BC Conservatives, or would be they would be recognized as an official party, which means a bigger budget, does it not? Yeah, so there's a few reasons why it's important. One is the budget. So you come with it, you get a budget in the legislature, you get a budget to travel the province, to speak to people, you get questions every day in question period. And another part of this is it's an easier route to be included uh, in those debates around election time, which are so crucial for the leaders when people are watching politics very, very closely. And so I canvassed a number of BC Liberals today uh, I am told that all of them have vowed their allegiance to the party. There is no intention for any of the sitting MLAs to join the Conservatives. But for a short period today, there was a tweet out there from the Conservative Party of BC subtweeting one of my tweets saying, you know, we just need one more for official party status. Stay tuned. So clearly the recruiting drive is on to try to attract one of those further right candidates to potentially join, and then they have the same standing as the B.C. Greens would uh, in the legislature. And, you know, this is in part why the B.C. Liberals are contemplating this name change, right? They have put forward that they are going to be changing to B.C. United. It may or may not happen before the next election. And that is largely a play to try to show this united front through all parts of the free enterprise coalition and get rid of that liberal name to try to appeal to conservative voters in this province. Uh, are there any MLA's names that are being mentioned in regards to <laughs> joining Mr. Uh, Mr. Rustad? I mean, you're spe- you'd be speculating, but I'm okay with speculation sometimes. You, you, know, you know who his friends are, right? So I spoke to Ellis Ross. Uh, John Rustad chaired Ellis Ross's leadership campaign. Uh, they are close friends. Uh, when I asked Ellis Ross about it today, he said, I'm not considering a change right now. And, you know, Ellis um, w- says he's still close friends with Rustad, that he thinks it's great that we have more voices, more parties in the legislature. So that's one name. Uh, Tom Shapitka is another name. Again, someone who has worked with Rustad in election campaigns. And uh, Keith Walter and I were looking at the numbers earlier, Jazz. And, mm-hmm. and the one sort of that stuck out was in a riding 
where someone may be worried about losing their seat if a conservative runs against them, and that's Bruce Bandman in Abbotsford. So nobody, no conservative ran against Bandman in the last election. He won by a few thousand votes. There is a possibility that if a conservative runs there, that could mean, you know, that seat's in play for the conservatives, for the liberals, or for the BC NDP. So maybe that's someone as well that can consider it. Again, speculation, looking at who knows Rustad, where people lean on the political spectrum. I think the interest from Liberals now is winning the next election as Liberals or as BC United, whatever it is. But there may be an appetite for people that if they believe they can further their political career, mm-hmm. then maybe the Conservative Party of BC is their ticket. I'm not so sure it's a, it's a long-term viable option in provincial politics, but you know those are the sort of people that may be looking at what this looks like to, to help that party out, give it status, and, and help them out financially and and, and increase their profile so they can have a dialogue with British Columbians about what they stand for. Yeah, this is the challenge that I see, and I could be wrong here, but we're in an era of populism, so it's very difficult to be a centrist party. Now, the BC Liberals or Socrates prior to that generally were a coalition of federal liberals and federal conservatives. Uh, it's difficult to keep that centrist coalition together at the best of times, never mind in an era of populism. You've talked about, obviously, interior voters in, in, in interior MLAs. They may lean a little bit more conservative. But where the, where the seats are, where they need to win, Vancouver, Surrey, Burnaby, New Westminster, let's say the Tri-Cities as well, um, I would say the liberal name actually helps. And so as Mr. Falcon... Uh, is trying to deal with the challenges and attacks on the conservative side of things, he's still got to work towards uh, dealing with those centrist voters that are in Vancouver and Surrey and, and the Richmonds and the Coquitlams. He's got a tough challenge ahead of him. Christy Clark taught the lesson on how to do this well. In 2013, leading up to that election, she was fighting this two-flank war, that she had the NDP charging forward in Metro Vancouver, like you said, going after those liberal voters. At the same time, John Cummins had launched this conservative party again. Uh, We had John Van Dongen joining the party. All of this was happening. So what Christy Clark did is she went out and found some high-profile senior conservative MPs, John Reynolds, Stockwell Day. There were others who came and helped her shore up the right wing of the party uh, leading up to the election. That issue went away, and then she moved back to the center and could focus in on winning that election. Falcon doesn't come from the liberal part of the party like Christy Clark did. So moving towards that is a little bit harder for him, but he needs to find conservatives like Pierre Polyevre and other well-known federal conservatives here in the province to try to fight off that B.C. conservative wing. And then he could focus in on winning the election in the center, which is you and I know that's where you win this election. Federal conservatives largely vote for the B.C. liberals. Federal NDPers largely vote for the provincial NDP. It's those federal liberals that ultimately determine who's going to be the premier of British Columbia. I just had Christy Clark on the show at 5 o'clock. We were talking about uh, bringing in a happy hour uh, 10 years ago. So she's much <laughs> more interested in talking about that than getting involved with the, the John Rustad issues because she's had to deal with it in the past. But it, once again, BC politics reminds you can drive any person to drink because it's always yeah, ever, yeah. And, ever and changing. One, she did it better than anyone we've seen. And, that, and, and Kevin Falcon needs to look at that playbook and say, Christy did it once. 
And that's the way that you can replicate it to try to neutralize uh, losing those votes on the right. That is true, but they're always they're, they were both frenemies as well. So I'm not sure how much he wants to be. Richard, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Taz. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.